Welcome to That's Derm Good. I'm Janelle Ball, and I'm excited to bring you thought-provoking conversations about biologics, specialty medications, treatments, and so much more. I'll be chatting with some amazing guests about access, affordability, and advocacy. You're really going to enjoy this show. This episode is sponsored by BC Educators. BC Educators offers in-office training and virtual bio coordinators to create a single point of contact for everything from prior authorizations to prescription acquisition and patient follow-up. To ensure your patients have the access to the medications they need, hire the right team to simplify your dermatology office processes. Visit bceducators.com. That's B-C-E-D-U-C-A-T-O-R-S.com. Patient access is our priority. Today, my guest is Zainab Alber. She is an RN, an FRM, and a former biologic coordinator. So I want to start from the beginning. I want to hear like your story, like when you decided to be an RN, like what did that journey look like? So I do have a disclaimer to read before we kind of get into the nitty gritty. The views and opinions expressed here are my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Just before we get into it, just wanted to kind of put that out there because I am here on my own time and I obviously was invited by you. So I'm super excited. So I'm a nurse by trade, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I worked for a long time in a dermatology office here local to me. I'm in April Park, New York. So I worked in Troy, New York for many, many years. With a lovely, you know, private practice. I love my practitioners and, you know, still keep in touch with all of them. So in that journey, I started in 2009 with that office and we only had a few biologics in Durham and Durham was new to me and I was an LPN at the time and the word biologics was new to me. Like everything was new. Biologics were this emerging treatment option for patients at that time. So I was doing prior offs with them and it was a lot to learn. And that journey was very difficult for me because I felt alone because there wasn't a lot of resources for me as a nurse and, you know, a bio coordinator, which that term came many years after, but getting access to these drugs was difficult, understanding coverage criteria uh, and I don't know, just everything. We were paper faxing back then and it was just, Mm -hmm. there was so much that was difficult. And I, I felt as though I didn't have anyone to kind of network with and ask questions to. I was just kind of like a ship out in the sea by myself. But as time went on, that changed. Obviously, we've gotten more biologics in that space since then. And it was fast for many years. We were kind of getting saturated and it was hard to keep up. And throughout that journey, pharma introduced FRMs and sales reps became definitely important to my education and getting my patients therapy. And then FRMs, again, you know, just more so yeah. in the arena, I felt myself quenching all the education I could. I was just like kind of emerging, immersing myself in any education I could get, you know, as far mm-hmm. as dinner programs, lunch and learns, things like that. And I really found that that was so helpful in getting hundreds of patients on therapy for me. Mm-hmm. And that I was touching these lives that way. I thought, huh, maybe I could be an FRM and touch more patients' lives in some way by impacting people like me. So I I loved the idea of becoming that helpful person to many, many. There were no FRMs in that role. So what did you do? Like, how did you learn the process? How did you start understanding how to navigate insurance? Great question. So initially, 
it was kind of like being kicked all the time. I mm-hmm. would do prior offs and I'd get denials and, you know, I'd just be like so frustrated and my patients would be impacted. So it was like this ego thing, right? It was like, wow, see, you suck. Like, what are you doing? Like, you don't know what you're doing. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. So first and foremost, it was learning about the disease state. So I really had to understand what psoriasis was at that point, right? Hydratinitis was emerging as well. We didn't have biologics for any other diseases at that point that I can think of. So first and foremost, it was understanding clinical criteria. And that was, I educated myself through contacting the reps. I would always have a question for the rep. I would always be like, all right, what piece of literature do you have? Help me understand this disease state. So it was really understanding the clinical portion of that disease state, whatever, you know, like I said, psoriasis or hydratinitis at the time or whatever. That was the first thing. And then understanding those denial letters, I think was really, really, really imperative for me to really get them and read them because Mm -hmm. there was a lot of information there. And I know that can be long or whatever, but there's a lot of information there. You know, the most important pieces of information in there are why this patient's being denied, right? Mm -hmm. And then what they need to do to meet the criteria to get approved. So I see that as like, okay, well, I'll just start tracking that you know, this plan Mm -hmm. requires this, this plan requires that. And then I started kind of keeping paper notes, you know, (laughs) you know how absurd that can be. Right. But it's so true. It is. And then I found this thing where you could go online and like look up formularies. And I was like, this is Mm -hmm. a great tool. Like, let me, let me print them all out. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I would print out formularies of my local plans and, you know, thinking that I had it all under control and then I wouldn't. And it became like, gosh, see, what are you doing wrong? Like, you know, I was just like trying to develop a method to get this figured out. And then finally I realized, Mm -hmm. you know what? Plans change too often. Formularies Mm -hmm. are always changing. SP relationships are always changing. I need to, there has to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And thankfully around that time, cover my meds started to come up, you know, benefit verifications became a thing. So you could send in an enrollment form and kind of get an investigation back. And sometimes they would Mm -hmm. tell you what the patient needed, you know, having their history before the plan would cover it kind of thing. And then FRM started coming up. So there was all these tools. So things became a little bit easier. I stopped being so hard on myself because I couldn't get everything right all the time, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot to learn. I mean, I remember when I first started and at the office that I was in, the clinical research team was doing the prior authorizations. And so, you know, they had asked me, okay, would you be interested in doing the biologics? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I had no idea. So, you know, they just handed it over to me and they were like, well, you just need to do a prior authorization. There really wasn't any support or resources available to really help, you know, create a process and understanding why creating a process was necessary. And really, you have to understand, you know, like you were saying, the disease state. And a lot of offices still don't realize that you've got to read those denial letters. You've got to see why they're denying it, what that reason is. Because if you don't, then it could be denied for something that you could have gotten approved. That's right. 100%. And guess what? That's impacting that patient and their family and, you know, all these things. And to your point, I do have to say selfishly, when I was going through that kind of transition, which was a few years, like it definitely was hurting my Mm -hmm. ego. And I definitely felt like I was letting my providers down, but I was also Mm -hmm. letting the patient down. And that hurt me. Like I took that deep and Mm -hmm. we all do, right? Because we want to help. We want to be seen as a resource and we want to get these therapies for the patients. 
But to echo exactly what you're saying, those denial letters are like gold. Read mm -hmm. them. I, you don't need to read the first few letters, or, you know, the first few pages, but you will find the section where it details what their criteria is and why they're denying it. And I'm sure you've had stories like this. Sometimes the difference between a patient getting denied and approved is the word and or the word mm. or because the criteria is they need to try this and this or they need to try this or this and you're interpreting it as and. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, and what we're talking about to be a little more specific is maybe a topical and a PO therapy or it's a topical or a PO therapy. So, you know what I mean? And sometimes right. we can we can just brush over the letters and then you're like, oh, well, the patient doesn't need that and we're not going to order that med. And, you know, mm -hmm. when really I just urge take 10 minutes to look over the letter, mm -hmm. close your door in their office, find a quiet place, read it over because to invest that time looking mm -hmm. at it, you know, in depth is going to save more time in the end. You're going to have a more clear picture right. of what's happening. Well, yeah. I mean, and that goes to show why it's important to have somebody that's specifically focused on understanding insurance and being able to get that access. Because, you know, when you've got an office that's so busy and you've got MAs running around, you know, rooming patients, documenting, you know, all of those things, and then trying to take time to read a denial letter, it just doesn't happen. And then what ends up happening is the provider just thinks that there's no access to that medication because they're getting so many denials. That's right. It, it's a dangerous misconception. It builds mm -hmm. the thought that X drug is difficult to get. And right. I always say in my mind now, have having gone through, you know, many, many years of <laughs> denials and all that, a drug is easy to get if you have the right patient, right? There's a criteria more than likely. We just mm -hmm. need to know what that criteria is and we need to get that patient up to that criteria. So if it's, they need to try X drug, X drug, X drug, and it's for the X, you know, Y long, then that's what we need to get. And then guess what? Right. We'll probably get that approved. So it's mm -hmm. just knowing the insurance criteria and then meeting it. And I like to always, always say to my offices and even for myself, know what that is. Look at the chart, talk to your patient, get their previous therapies, get that in your EMR system or in your chart mm -hmm. and get it in your mind, right? Get a good picture of what's happening, what's happened in the, in the past with the patient, what's currently happening with the patient, what drugs have they filled recently, all of that, get that in there. Right. And you really set yourself up for getting that patient covered and avoiding, that's my mm -hmm. thing, avoid the denial. Right. Put the work and research in before you do a PA. I think most of us do multiple jobs, mm -hmm. right? We're not just doing PAs. I love the fact that providers that are, you know, progressive in their thinking recognize that biologics is an important component, if not one of the most important components of a biologic patient's journey. And allowing that to be in your office is an amazing mm -hmm. thing. Like I understand, you know, it doesn't bring any more money and you're not, you know, turning over a buck and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're going to be able to service our patients in a more effective way. Right. And it's kind of mm -hmm. almost impossible to do if you're rooming patients, doing a biopsy, you right. know, you can't be on the phone with a specialty pharmacy mm -hmm. doing appeal or setting one up or whatever, or shipment or whatever it is, right? You can't be on the phone with insurers or SPs or anything like that, fighting the good fight if we have to be in interrupted to run patients, but it could also yeah. just be, you know, a couple of days set aside. 
or our day or whatever you right where you're solely focused on that you know and that's interesting that you said too when we're talking about making money off of the biological coordinator role but honestly when you think about it I there was a study that I was looking at and it was talking about how much it costs for one patient to get on a biologic but you think about you know the prior authorization process and getting the patient started on therapy yes it's it's time consuming but at the same time it's also helping with patient compliance because now your patient's not waiting. I mean, if you think about the average time to fill for a lot of offices, if you don't have one person focused on, you know, the prior authorizations and getting patients started on therapy, majority of the time is probably what I would say, maybe what, four weeks or longer. Oh, for sure. You know, Absolutely. and even with my team of bio coordinators, it's two days, the turnaround time to get patients approved for a medication and two days versus two weeks. And you think about the time that the patient has to think about, you know, they're going home They're First of all, they're in the office talking to the provider, the provider's telling them how great this drug is going to be for them and how much is going to change their life. And, you know, they're, you know, if they have psoriasis, they're going to get clear. And now those expectations of being clear are way higher. It's like, you can get a hundred percent clearance. Right. And when you think about that, it's like, you're dangling that beautiful picture in front of the patient and then they leave and then it's two weeks to four weeks to six weeks to get a medication. And what do you think that patient's going to do? They're going to be frustrated, number one, because they still haven't gotten any relief. And number two, they probably might find another doctor that can get the medication for them, you know, or they just won't come back at all. They will find other reasons, you know, maybe Dr. Google or Pinterest or something like that (laughs) to figure out how else they can treat their psoriasis or, you know, eczema or anything else. So, you know, that's why it's so important to have one person focused on that. And, you know, and it it just drives me crazy because you think about the time wasted on not being able to get that patient, the medication, the compliance side of things, you know, that's a liability and, you know, just making sure that the patient is able to come back in for those follow-up appointments and be able to have a better quality of life. I mean, that is where that biologic coordinator role is so important. And, you know, like you said, we are determined. It takes a special person to be able to do that role because you've got that determination and that fight because we know that we're going to have to deal with insurance. And even starting out, it's like, wait a minute, this is not going to be an easy thing. I've got to do some research or I've got to figure out what plans are going to ask what questions and how to navigate this whole insurance thing. Or, you know, if there's issues with the copay and making sure that patients understand if they've got a commercial insurance, pretty much they're going to be able to get any drug that they want because most of these commercial insurances are either, you know, if they're approved, then that's great. But if they're denied, then most of these pharmaceutical companies have a bridge program or some sort of way for them to get medication. So, you know, the access now is there, you know, it's just a little bit trickier trying to figure it out and trying to navigate that. I love that. You brought up so many good points that I kind of want to dive into a little bit. (laughs) First, I definitely think that I encourage every office to have a dedicated Mm -hmm. bio coordinator. Like we said, it doesn't have to be, you know, one person, hundred percent of the time, but sometimes set aside for that person to do what they need to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And the process is so important, right? So we, as FRMs, we talk a lot about process because we want to improve the process. So it's interesting. You said that, like when you consider denials and the time that the office spends and getting these patients, okay. 
when I look back retrospectively and I look back at my process and how effective it was, it became effective. But Mm -hmm. outside looking in, I think it was important for me to understand that some things seem pseudo simple. Like it's a false sense of security. And Mm -hmm. this may be an unpopular opinion, but for me, doing prior authorizations through an electronic PA system was much more effective and streamlined than Mm -hmm. say using a third party. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, using a third party seems simple on the surface. It Mm -hmm. seems like it's going to be so much easier for the office because we just send it to XYZ and they're going to do the PA. Right. But then we're not considering the faxing that goes back and forth, the time that you're actually spending on prepping the third party for your Mm -hmm. PA by faxing in clinical notes, signing. Yeah. And chart notes. That's one thing there too. It's like, if the chart notes aren't done, you just hit the nail on the head right there. Because when you talk about like over-promising and under-delivering, I feel like that happens so often. And there is that perspective where, you know, offices think that, oh, okay, They're just going to do everything and make it easier for us. Well, no, you still have to have one person focus. There's a time and a place for these third parties to be able to utilize them, right? You just have to know how to do it the right way. And if you still don't have one person focused on helping get that access, but also even the chart notes, the documentation, when I talk about this to offices, you know, one of the things that I say is, you know, there's a third party that's handling this, that's doing the prior authorization, right? They're reading the chart notes that you sent them. They don't know the patient like you do. You know, we know the patient and we could probably look at the chart notes at a glance and then fill out that prior authorization form because we know the patient, but they're looking at the notes and looking at the PA form, trying to pick out, you know, what they need to fill out that form and things get done wrong. You know, questions could be answered wrong and not necessarily saying that the office can't make mistakes because that can happen too. And that's where it's really important, you know, for the documentation side. But when somebody is relaying information, you know, I feel like I've seen these little memes on, on like LinkedIn and Instagram where they were talking about, you know, when you're playing telephone, when you were a kid, you know, (laughs) when you're trying to explain one thing to somebody and then they tell it to somebody different, by the time it gets to that other person, it's completely misconstrued and it can be totally different. So You know, and that's the same when you're trying to relay that information. If the documentation is not done to a T and like very well done, then it's just not going to work. And you're going to see a lot of denials and you're going to see a lot of frustration, not only on the office and the providers, but also the patients. And Mm -hmm. yes, you can do these appeals, but if you don't know how to manage it properly, that's a time sucker right there where you're faxing stuff back and forth. And then the insurance goes, well, you didn't put this in the notes. And, you know, now insurance criteria is crazy. They want all kinds of stuff. I mean, they want to have all the scoring tools, obviously, but there's a lot of chart notes that I've seen that are missing scoring tools, believe it or not. 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. First, I want to revisit the fact (laughs) that we're talking about sending off to a third party. I would say a high proportion of the denials that I see are because Mm -hmm. PAs are not adequately prepped for. And that is coming from, and I like my offices to do this. I I try to stress this. So any offices that are listening, if you haven't heard me say this before, please know that I 100% believe in this. Review the chart notes before you submit the PA. Right. Make sure that you have a conversation with the patient right? Make sure that you have everything documented in there. Don't just send off, oh, 
so-and-so needs to be on this drug. Let's just send it to the third party to do, no, please pause. Look at the clinical notes. Make sure that your scoring tools are in there. Make sure mm -hmm. that you've documented or the provider has documented some sort of activities of daily living, you know, ADL involvement. Insurers need to see how impactful this disease is to the patient. It's important for the patient's story. Right. You know, whoever you have the third party doing your prior offs, they're not going to know that unless it's right. documented. Um, I also like to see baseline scoring. So if you're mm -hmm. using a BSA on a psoriasis patient, use BSA or use their baseline, use their highest mm -hmm. BSA that's in there. Make sure it's documented in one of the most recent notes. So whoever's doing your PAs doesn't have to kind of shuffle through everything. It's kind of really just compiling the patient's journey and making mm -hmm. sure that you're checking boxes on fundamental criteria, right? Every disease state, every drug is going to have a foundational requirement, right? So right. it's going to be a certain score. You know, it's going to be 10% BSA for a psoriasis patient. They're going to want to see ADL involvement. They're going to want to see prior therapies. And it may be, this is where I see a lot also get hung up. X provider sent Y topical in to the pharmacy eight months ago. Mm. Patient comes back in, communication is poor, or maybe the clinical documentation is poor. Provider assumes that the patient filled the medicine and it's not working because their BSA didn't change or whatever. And then the prior auth goes in and they get a denial because they haven't tried a topical, you know, this topical. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a lot of confusion that goes on. And it's like, well, it was ordered, you know, eight months ago. You're shaking your head because you probably see this, right? Yeah. And it ends time. up being that the patient never filled the, the script. They mm -hmm. never filled the script through the pharmacy. Right. And as we know now, when insurers will look at what claim has been pulled through. What have they paid for previously? Mm -hmm. If they have not seen a claim adjudication, right? So that's when the pharmacy actually fills the script and the patient picks it up. If the payer knows that they haven't paid for, you know, this particular topical, guess what? Yep. They're going to deny it. You know, yep. chances are they're going to deny it. So I guess my point is, is do a really good, you know, review of the chart notes and make sure everything's in the most recent chart yeah. note, you know, and then send it off. Maybe yeah. check your diagnosis codes. They need mm -hmm. to be correct. You know, well, do you think about through. the um like samples being in the chart notes? Okay. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. So I think that goes back. There's reasons why we want to make sure that we're documenting baseline BSAs or baseline scoring tools, right? Because if mm -hmm. you give a patient a sample, sure, you want to clinically document it. If it's not documented, it isn't done, but we mm -hmm. like to see documentation. So document it, but make sure that if there's an improvement that you're attributing it to the sample or whatever has happened, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a good way for us as bio coordinators, you know, when we're doing the PA, we can kind of mention that, right? You can work mm -hmm. that into our PA or whatever. Right. Um, I do think that it's important to know safety and efficacy with concomitant therapy. And what do I mean by that? If it hasn't been studied and if there's not clinical trial data to back up the use of two medicines together, it could be a pitfall. So if you're documenting, you know, a topical therapy and then you're ordering a biologic therapy and those two have not been studied or those two are not approved to be used together, that mm -hmm. could work against the patient getting approved, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. without getting into like specific names and, you know, things like that. Just be aware that, right. you know, clinical trial documentation, like it has to be safe and effective for an mm -hmm. insurer to cover something. So if you're doing something off label or anything like that, obviously that's going to be a red flag to any pair. Right. What do you think about that? 
I think that's so true. I mean, even I even see some of those questions that come up on the prior auth forms where they're asking if they're going to be used in combination with, you know, another biologic or another DMARD or something. So they're asking those questions. They want to know what the patients are taking. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think it's on the up and up right? We want to make mm-hmm. sure that patients are safe and they're getting effective treatment and they're trying to gather the patient history. They want yeah. to make sure that they're checking that box and making sure that the patient's safe. And we all want that. We all right. want the journey to be safe. We all want it to be backed by evidence. And that's mm-hmm. the one thing that, you know, as healthcare professionals, anyone working in the office, everything we do is evidence-based. So mm-hmm. I think it's a good clinical practice to document everything you're doing. And then obviously always revisit on whether, you know, it's safe mm-hmm. and effective and, and, you know, insurers are just kind of reiterating that. So, you know, I feel like insurance landscape has changed so much and it's gotten it seems like it's gotten more and more difficult. Do you think some of these questions that the insurance is asking, is it do you feel like it's beneficial or do you feel like it's more of just a reason to say no? I like to think the positive, right? Like I like to think mm-hmm. that, yes, you know, there's good clinical reason for this. They're asking all these questions, this and that. I have gotten the impression in the office as, you know, bio coordinator doing auth. It did feel like they wanted to say no a lot. Mm-hmm. It did. Mm-hmm. It, I'm not going to lie. Like it definitely felt yeah. that. I think now that I'm not in it. And I kind of look at the science more. I think it's okay. Like, I think that we're dealing with high-end therapies that are life altering and they're expensive. I mean, we Mm -hmm. can't leave that out. Do insurers want to pay for it? Maybe, maybe not. But you know what? They have a criteria. And if getting a patient on therapy means that you have to answer 59 questions, Mm-hmm. then I'm willing to answer the 59 questions. And as right. absurd as that may seem, or as ridiculous as it may seem, I think, I think it's okay. I think we yeah. can do it. And I think it's worth it. And, you know, as long as you're prepared and you did the review of the medical history mm-hmm. and you have a good solid knowledge of what's happened in that patient's life, you'll be prepared and it'll be successful. Yeah. I think now though, a lot of the questions and the criteria, I mean, like you were saying, having that baseline BSA and the current BSA, Mm -hmm. for example, I mean, now insurance is asking that. So it's almost creating better office practice (laughs) when you're making sure that that information is in the notes. I mean, I've even had some plans that specifically ask, what is the baseline BSA and what is the current BSA? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, is that scoring tool, has it gone down by two points? And if it has not, then we will not approve it. I mean, I've seen plans just flat out say that. So, you know, now that we know that it's like, okay, get your best practice now, you know, start with the most difficult plan and keep that as, you know, what you continue to do from now on. That's great. Yeah. You know, wow. Why did I do that? (laughs) No, that's great. Work to the most difficult plan. So here's the other thing that I'll say about like baseline scoring and things. Okay. So let's just go into like biologics for psoriasis patients. Most offices and most payers We'll use BSA as a scoring tool. It's fundamental mm-hmm. in dermatological practice that we use BSA scoring for mm-hmm. certain diseases. And right? just to clarify for anyone, any listeners that don't know what a BSA is, the body surface area. And okay. typically that is for, you know, 1% would be the palm of your hand. And that would determine the percentage of, of psoriasis that you have on your hand. So. Right. Yes, good point. <laughs> so there's many scoring tools out there to show disease severity and then improvement. 
thereof, mm -hmm. right? So mo the most common in clinical practice, like we're saying is BSA. So mm -hmm. patients, POM percentage, 1%, blah, 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 right? So we document that baseline. So when you're thinking of, you know, submitting your PA, right? And then we're thinking of re-offs. This is a big thing. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we're consistent in the scoring tools that we're using. If a certain payer does not accept BSA, which I've seen, not many, but there is mm -hmm. one out there, submitting a BSA score <laughs> baseline and improvement is not going to help. You're going to mm -hmm. get a denial. Right. So that's going to be the exception. But for the general rule, BSA is going to be accepted, right? I think that's easy to say. Fact mm -hmm. check me, yell at me if I'm wrong, but I think that's easy to say. But that's where your yeah. list of all the criteria that you were writing down really comes in handy. Who's going to remember that one plan? That's right. There you go. There, remember the exceptions. But my point is, is that if you're using a scoring tool as the baseline, it's important to be consistent with that. It's hard mm -hmm. to change. Like if you're going to use an IGA score <laughs> and mm -hmm. then you want to show improvement and you're giving them a BSA, that's, that's going to be a difficult thing. You need to, you know, be mm -hmm. consistent in the scoring tools and, and apples to apples, right? Use a BSA right. for baseline, use a BSA for improvement. Kind of, you don't want to mix those two because right. insurers don't really like that. They're not equal. Would it be safe to say have at least two scoring tools? I, I think that's a great mm -hmm. idea. Me personally, I like to see like a provider tool. So mm -hmm. a BSA, some type of objective scoring tool, right? But I also like to see a patient scoring tool. We used it in um, clinical trials when I was in the office. We did like observational studies. So we did phase three and phase four, but we use this a lot in phase four clinical trials is the POEM score. Mm -hmm. So it's like a patient reported scoring tool. And I okay. love that because you know what we're getting? We're getting ADL involvement. We're getting the patient story and then mm -hmm. we're getting the provider story, right? Yeah. And we're getting that in one clinical note. That's a great way to tell to ensure a story on both mm -hmm. the provider's pers perspective and the patient's perspective without having to ask yeah. the patient to do anything separate outside the clinical appointment. That makes so much sense because when you think about, you know, I always talk about quality of life and making sure that that is information that we have in the chart notes, because yep. that makes a huge difference. The impact right. that it has on a patient's life, whether it's psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, HS, you know, any of these chronic diseases, it has a major impact on a patient's life and their quality of life and how it affects their work, you know, their day to day. And that is so important to make sure that we're putting that information in the notes. And, you know, like you said, we're painting a picture for the insurance. We're trying to get them to understand, you know, the severity and why they really need this medication versus, you know, the step therapy or yeah. a topical, you know, right. when a topical really just wouldn't be conducive for a patient. That's right. I mean, if you're 10% BSA or higher and you have psoriasis, like mm -hmm. flathering a topical all over is absurd twice a day. You know what I mean? It's inadequate like yeah. to treat that more than likely. You know, we're advocates for the patient. We we want to mm -hmm. make sure that we're telling their story appropriately and however we can capture that in that clinical note each time. Right. You know, I know it's laborious and, you know, it can, can be, you know, a nightmare to kind of do. But I think once the process is down, like you're saying, it's not that bad. You know, you can set up certain, you know, if a diagnosis code pops up, you're typing in a diagnosis code in a clinical note, you can have the EMR set up. So it 
pops up two scoring tools and you ask the patient seven questions or whatever it is. And, and there you mm -hmm. are, you're, you're documenting whatever scoring tool that is. And then, you know, you could do your own assessment. So process is important to keep it lean yeah. and to keep it happening really. Right. Cause we want to, we want to be consistent in what we're documenting. And yeah, absolutely. So the bio coordinator and the FRM go together like peanut butter and jelly, right? <laughs> As you kind of progressed and you decided, you know, the FRM rules started popping up, what made you decide to change? You know, how is that role different from the biologic coordinator? I've been so blessed to have amazing FRMs in my area and the ones that I've worked with. And, but it does take a special person to do that FRM role. Yeah, it does. So speaking as a biologic coordinator, you know, I was with you, we spoke on, you know, many different bureaus, you know, for different drugs and spoke on access. And so traveling around and getting exposure that way really kind mm -hmm. of made me think, wow, I could really impact patients broadly if I was to step out of my BC role and mm -hmm. be more involved with other offices, right? So that was kind of the driving force, right, to make the change. So to make the change was really difficult because I love what I did. Like, And to this day, I actually think, and I probably said this to you, when I retire, I'm going to be a BC again. <laughs> like, <laughs> when, when this phase of my life is over, I want to fight insurances and advocate for patients in that way because there's nothing like that. Yeah. But it is, does take a, I don't want to say a special person, but it takes a certain personality and a certain um, drive to want to do something like this because you have to be fully invested in it and it's not for everyone. And I totally get that. And, you know, there's any doubt in your mind that whether you want to do this, just keep asking yourself what's driving you. And if helping right. the patient is driving you, then you're going to do great. And if not, it's okay. You know what I mean? It's totally right. understandable. Don't fight it, you know, do something that drives you. Yeah. But I, so it was difficult. I left and, um, I loved my providers. I loved what I did. I think it was time for a change too. Like I thought, okay, I, you know, I have a growth mindset and I'm, you know, an adult learner and I graduated college in 2019. You know what I mean? So like I've had mm -hmm. been on this learning journey my whole life. It's taken me a long time to get, you know, a bachelor's degree. And, you know, of course I'll move on and I'll do more. So it was a good time for me emotionally to do it. It was mm. difficult to leave my providers and my office and the staff because I love them and I still think of them as family and I still, you know, am in touch with all of them. And sometimes I bump into patients and that's just so great that, you know, mm -hmm. we still have that connection. And that's great. I think moving into pharma and the FRM role has given me a lot more exposure to other offices. And I can relate to the people sitting in the seats that are doing this every day. Right. Mm -hmm. And that to me keeps me going in this role. Mm -hmm. I love the connection that I can make with the office because I'm your peer. Like right. I've been there. And I don't want to say I've been there and I've seen it all because I haven't. Like, mm -hmm. I love learning from my my coordinators and I hope they learn from me a little bit and I can just share my experience. Like, you know what I mean? I don't have all the answers and FRMs don't have all the answers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I love that the FRM role is there for a bio mm -hmm. coordinator, for an office staff or provider, whoever's doing the PI, right? And I hear this a lot. Oh, Zia, I'm sorry to bother you. I literally wait for your phone call. Please don't think that you're bothering us. As a bio coordinator would, you know, have my FRMs on speed dial. And I'm sure you're the same way because they are the conduit mm -hmm. of getting your patient on XYZ or therapy right. or 
you know, uh, what's the resource for this that your drug company has? Like, you know what I mean? Because we can't remember all that as BCs, right? But the FRMs are there to kind of guide us, right? Mm -hmm. And and I love being that go-to person. So I was, you feel like a go-to person as a bio coordinator in the office and FRM, Mm -hmm. you're still the go-to person. So it it kind of helps me in that way. You know, that drives me is that I like to be that go-to person for the office because that means I'm helping a patient in some Mm -hmm. way, shape or form. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing too, is that you're focused specifically on one drug. You know, when we've got so many biologics out, you want to have one person that can help you on that specific drug and not just an overall person that just says, oh yeah, we've got all these different biologics and, you know, you should probably do this. But was there a learning curve when you took that role? Like, did you feel like you had to learn more about insurance side of things? That's a good question. So a couple things. The learning curve for me was getting used to working in a corporate environment. Mm. That was the learning curve for me because I, you know, I worked in downtown Fry. I worked with the same people every day, right? Mm-hmm. I worked with the same players every day. I worked, you know, I loved my patients. We worked on a very personal level, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, it was almost like I had to, you know, being in the corporate world, that was the adjustment, like writing emails to a lot of people and, you know, coordinating mm-hmm. calls. And so that to me was the learning curve. You know, yeah. obviously I had the act, like I was an access specialist, right? That's what we are as coordinators, access specialists. So that to me was easy. And like learning mm-hmm. the resources was easy. It's a lifestyle change, right? Now I have mm-hmm. a bigger geography and I have to plan my days. And, you know, I didn't have to do that in the office. It was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. we have 15 patients that I got to deal with. And it became habit and you triage and you make sure that you're addressing the most important thing and, mm-hmm. you know, you're prioritizing. So that was the biggest change, but I did need to learn a little bit more about insurance because there was payers, obviously I wasn't familiar with Mm -hmm. and Medicare, Medicare, Mm -hmm. the the structure of Medicare. I just, it always was clouded for me. I don't know if Mm -hmm. it is for you and other people that may be listening to this. Yeah. So I still feel like I don't know enough about Medicare in general, and now it's going to change in 2020. So uh, if you're like me, mm-hmm. I think you, we can all agree Medicare is difficult. And as an FRM, mm-hmm. I, I could know more about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, yeah, definitely Medicare is is probably a difficult thing. And then the other thing is now we've got these accumulators and the maximizers. Mm. The little I know of them, they seem shady to me. Like, I can't believe that these things exist because it seems like it's harmful to the patient. But, you know, of course, that's my opinion. That's my perception of it. I don't see how it's helping the patient at all. And maybe it's just because I'm ignorant on the subject in some way. I think what I would say to bio coordinators is it's a conversation to have with the patient. Maybe that's something you want to ask because, but mm-hmm. patients may not know either. Like, how do you talk to a patient? Like, what would you say when you're educating yeah. coordinators, like what to look for or how to explain it to a patient? So most of the time, most FRMs cannot speak on those programs. Okay. So we refer to our, you know, our hub and, you know, I would say to the patient in general, whether Mm -hmm. they have a funky plan or not, I think it's important that patients are empowered and that they understand their own insurance plans because Mm -hmm. you own your insurance plan. I own my insurance plan. We have to be responsible and be aware So if I was to get one message out to the patients at all, it's Mm -hmm. know your plan. If it's through a spouse, 
be a part of picking that. If you are a biologic patient, it is important that you have good coverage. There's only so much we can do in the office and, you know, pharmaceutical companies, there's only so much they can do. There's Mm -hmm. only so much we can do. Ideally, patients will be covered by their plans and it will be an affordable copay or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So it's definitely important that patients are involved in that. Talk to your HR people, talk to your union representative, what, what, Mm -hmm. however you're covered, be a part of that decision-making, be involved in that and be informed and bring that back to your office staff, your bio coordinators, whoever's helping you get covered Mm -hmm. on, you know, said biologic, bring that information back. And, Mm -hmm. and if you can't find out or whatever it is, be aware of the spending. Be tuned into co-pays, be tuned into what is happening from the specialty pharmacy side. Be listening on that conversation when you're saying, okay, I'm ready for my shipment. And they say it's X Mm copay. Remember that. Tell your coordinator, well, they told me it was, you know, $50. If it's like some weird number, you know, some 2000, you know, $302, that may be a red flag, but track your spending. You know, right. a lot of copay cards have a have a portal that you can log on to and you can track your spending that way or whatever it is, call, you know, the number on the back of the copay card, whatever it is. I think it's important to track the spending. And that's how we will catch these plans. If you aren't aware ahead of time on, on what the structure of your plan is, keep the treatment going, keep, you know, therapy happening because it can be a pitfall. Obviously, if a patient can't afford a therapy, then it's not then it's not an option. Right. Right. Like, yeah. And as we see more of these plans, it's even more important to have the patient on our side and be aware of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. I mean, I feel like we're going to have to do a part two because there's yeah. so much more that I want to talk to you about. And- <laughs> Which is good. It's good. I guess if we were to sum up part two, <laughs> or do right. like a little tease for part two, I would say that coordinators, anyone in the office, If you're new to this, you know, tenured, whatever it is, wherever you are in the journey, know that there's resources out there, reach out to your FRMs, get your hands on, you know, your reps, get some clinical background, sign up for those educational programs, go out to dinner, do a lunch and learn, ask questions, whatever it is, but Mm -hmm. know who your resources are and network with other people, like-minded people. I'm on, you know, um, LinkedIn, you're on LinkedIn, lots yes. of us on LinkedIn, reach out. Find us on LinkedIn, for sure. Connect. Everyone's on LinkedIn. And then for patients, I would say be a partner in care, be be involved. Offices can only mm-hmm. do so much, insurers can only do so much, you know, be your own advocate, get someone in to the appointments with you, you know, that maybe mm-hmm. you need moral support, maybe you need someone to jot notes down. I totally get it. I'm an advocate for, you know, my family members, you know, I take notes, I ask questions. Whatever yeah. it is, whatever you need, um, involve someone in your care and, you know, keep your office, keep your providers in the loop of happenings, you know, your medical history, mm-hmm. therapies you're on, whatever it is, keep an open line of communication, I guess is what I'd say. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We'll do part two anytime. Yes, I'm ready. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Z. It was so good to talk to you and we will definitely continue this in a part two for sure. Love it. <laughs> All right. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me and listening to That's Derm Good. You can expect new episodes of That's Derm Good every other week. The podcast is available on your favorite app, including where you're listening right now. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a new episode. Bye. Bye.